Hey, Ross here. This week we are bringing you the recording of our live stream that was live on Twitch of our National Science Week discussion on the intersection between science and storytelling. So we'll be running that this week and next, and I really hope that you all enjoy it. Hello, everybody in the in the lovely chat who has decided to spend some time with these four beautiful nerds uh, for National Science Week. Uh, we will go around and introduce ourselves uh, momentarily. Uh, for those who have no idea what they're in for, uh, we are the cast and crew behind the two-year-old podcast Dungeons and Doctorates, mm. uh, a D&D meets academia and science podcast. Uh, which can be found on all of your favourite podcast platforms. Uh, please feel free to check us out and have a chat later. Uh, but for now, I might get Ben on the end with his lovely mug to, uh, to kick us off. Uh, yes, hello. I am Benjamin Kiernan, a science communicator and DM for Dungeons & Doctorates. Uh, great to be here and uh, happy to... Look for happy to answer questions and talk about science and uh, entertainment, where they collide and what it means. Excellent. Uh, and I think we'll go we'll go around in our usual you know behind the scenes moment uh, clap <laughs> order, which will make yeah. sense yeah. to us and to nobody else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who's next? That would be me. It's typically, not me. <laughs> yes. So hi yeah. everyone. Uh, people who don't know, I am Ross, and I have a long-standing passion for science communication, uh, and I'm an infectious disease researcher. So yeah, exciting times for me. Uh, <laughs> still, <laughs> so so Every much. Cloud. Mm. Every cloud has a silver lining. Hey. Mm. Um, <laughs> are we going with full names or? It's entirely up to you. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to take um, Benjamin's lead. Um, I am Dr. <laughs> Joanna Howes. I am a former researcher turned science communicator, um, and I blow stuff up and stick balloons to a wall for a living. It's a pretty fun time. Um, yeah, that's me. Hi. Really excited to get into nerdy stuff. Nerdy stuff? Us on this nerdy podcast? Stuff? Never. What? Uh, I, hi, uh, I am our lucky last person. Uh, I am Kate, O'Sullivan Kate on all of the platforms. Uh, I am a science communicator, an educator, and a performer of varying different types uh, based in Perth. Uh, so recently people have been seeing me do stuff at the museum. It's been great. Uh, but we are here today to talk about all things on the border of our favourite topics between science and pop culture and entertainment and, and all of those things. And as we have discovered over the last two years doing our podcast, there is a lot of things to, that we run into when we talk about pop culture and entertainment and so on. Uh, you're getting uh, some chair compliments in the chat there, Joe. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> it is pretty fantastic. Um, oh, but I we, love it. We sort of had a little bit of a pre-chat about some of the things we might talk about today. Because we realised that science and entertainment and that the things at that border really varies depending on what you're into and where you are and what industry and crossovers you have. So I might just get everyone to go around again and just sort of talk about where where their intersections between science and pop culture, like where they find themselves. Because I know that we all come at it from quite different angles, be that live performance, be that in um, the digital space. We all have seen different things and different... Um, 
in different parts of our careers. So I might throw mm-hmm. it again back to Ben um, just to, to have a bit of a chat about where sort of science meets pop culture and entertainment sits for you. Mm. So I've, I am a big film buff um, and I watch a lot of movies, watch a lot of TV, and uh, I have a, a background in film and, and animation. And so science fiction has always been a, a rich part of my life and I come at science and pop culture from a science fiction point of view where science fiction allows you to talk about all those great topics in a, a way that people can can wrap their head around, Doctor Who, Star Trek, those kinds of things. Um, plus it lets you talk about really interesting uh, culturally relevant topics in ways that sneak past the perceptions of most people. Uh, so that, yeah, I've got a background in physics as well. That's where my science uh, background comes into this. Pass to Ross. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think I've actually had quite a long um, standing relationship with science communication. And that's just because I was like the science nerd at school. And so I, I really would find myself explaining concepts to my friends. Um, and I found I really enjoyed that. And even before I started doing research, even during undergrad, I had a podcast a long time ago um, where I would just enjoy talking about the, the weekly science news because I just found it so interesting. Um, and I think I also grew up with a lot of the same influences as a lot of the panel here that, you know, you would watch things like Star Trek that had this like fantastical kind of like sciencey aspect to it. But then, uh, you know, I, I sort of grew up in that peak like Mythbusters era as well, where, um, you know, they were applying myths from often from movies and testing whether they would work. And I, I really loved that as well. So I, I love that popular culture can be such a great on-ramp for talking about science. And as Ben says, you can really kind of sneak stuff in. Um, I think one of my favorite examples recently, or I say recently, this film's kind of old now, but Interstellar, you know, went to great lengths to talk to people about how would a black hole look if you could get close up close to it? You know, and they really went out of their way to sort of show people what a black hole could look like. And that was such a... In, impossible thing to visualize I think for most people until that movie came out and now everyone knows what a black hole looks like which I think is awesome cool. what about you Joe? Uh, where does it hit so, you? oh gosh um, I think one of the biggest parts of science communication for me is storytelling right like everyone loves a good story um, a lot of um, complicated things and Tricky decisions and, and, you know, complex topics, I think, can be communicated best through storytelling. So ways that make things relevant for people, you know, puts yourself in that story and in that frame. Um, And yeah, like Ben and Ross, I grew up with, you know, Star Trek. Like my dad would um, tape it on a VCR. I'm old. Um, And we'd, you know, when it was on like, I know, crazy. When it was on at like, um, you know, two o'clock in the morning and we'd all sit down and watch it as a family. And like, that was my introduction to sci-fi, that kind of thing. Right. Like, um, yeah. And now I work in a science museum that has a planetarium. So I get to tell those stories through theater and through um, a crazy, amazing digital immersive experience. And it's just, it's really, really cool. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I love it. I think um, science fiction and pop culture have a really huge part to play. And um, 
I think that kind of gets pushed aside sometimes and I don't think it should be. Yeah, um, I think I come at it from a similar sort of spot to Joe, but a little bit different in that uh, I have been a performer for a long time as well as a scientist. And so a lot of what I have been involved in and the kinds of things that I do often really collide those two things together. So, for example, for Science Week last year, um, I was involved in a play called Emily Lamarckis de Chatelet Defends Her Life Tonight, which is all about literal science that happened in history, but told, mm-hmm. as Joe says, through a narrative and a storytelling sense. Um, and that goes to a lot of theatre that I get involved in, a lot of projects I work on. Um, mm-hmm. I have this real fusion of where do you talk about science and how do you talk about it to keep people engaged and interested, but also to be as accurate as is necessary in that moment. So how accurate you need to be with like little kids in a science context. So when you're, you know, in a school doing a science show, how detailed do you need to be versus if you're doing a play about the translation of Newton's laws into French, how detailed do you want to be in that context? And they're very different, um, but also very different for different reasons. So whether you're talking about uh, progressing a a much more fictional narrative versus here, child, here is fact. Um, here is facts. So I think it can be, it can be quite interesting. And, uh, we were talking a bit before the stream over the last few days about the kinds of things that we wanted to talk about today. And I think weaving science into stories is a core part of what we do as a podcast and what we do, uh, a lot of us as people. Um, so I know Ben, you mentioned that that's one of the things you wanted to talk about. Um, and I know it's something that we, we do a lot. I've noticed that, uh, Someone in the chat has 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 asked the real question: um, whether the ice is a rock debate has been settled or not, which does refer to something that we we did debate on the podcast at one point. That discussion uh, we talked about that. It's very important. Yeah. The podcast would suggest to. We... I think we faded to black at the end of like we, like we faded to silent. Yeah, it was just like, guys, no, we talked too long about this. <laughs> yeah, that did go on for a really uncomfortably long amount of time. The it definitions of words like that. Yeah. I mean, Ben, um, you, you do a lot of our story writing, like the, the core, mm. like big picture stuff. What mm-hmm. um what do you what do you think about when you're thinking about the things we're likely to run up against as opposed to the things that we naturally just devolve into, like is ice mm. a rug? <laughs> um, uh, yes, well, I mean, Rachel to be, to be in the fair, chat has just said she was very disappointed that we faded to black and she didn't get to listen to the whole debate. <laughs> It was too long, Rach. It was way too long. <laughs> and we have been uh, ordered to release the full Ice is a Rock cut, by the way. Uh, uh, okay. So I don't know Probably if we can do that at some point. Might be yeah. in the archives. Mm. Patreon, um, Patreon future Bonin's content. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Bonin's yeah. got it yeah. in his library, at, you know, somewhere in the yeah. Yeah, deep, yeah. dark yeah. recesses of the underlibrary. So mm. when it comes to, to writing story things that involve science, um, often I'm coming up with interesting ideas and then I put kind of science things into it, or I come up with an interesting like quirk of science and then write bits of narrative around that. Um, a good example is that we had a story arc where all the characters got shrunk down yeah. to the size of ants. And we had quite a bit of discussion around what that would be like from a physical point of view the difference in sound and light and how 
the the forces would interact differently at that scale uh, even just like breathing how that would be like because you know it's one of the things that happens in science fiction a whole bunch but is often very glossed over um ant-man gets away with it by wearing a full like space suit where he can just shrink down and he's fine everything's um, fine because mm -hmm. he's wearing a costume yeah but what if it's you are costume? what if you do have to breathe well, and all yeah, those kinds yeah. of things yeah. Um, you know, their characters are currently on the moon. So Spoilers. Know, what does what does that mean? <laughs> We've been I mean, we had a long, long chat time, about that. to be fair. We have, and we did have a long chat about that actually, which I'm pretty sure Ross and Ben would you would have trimmed down about <laughs> what does and doesn't work on the moon, because there mm -hmm. was a lot of discussion about I may moon. or may not have done like a very deep dive into how the moon works for a show that I helped develop at Science Space. So <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. I'm a bit. I'm like low key obsessed with the moon. Well, there was yeah, just there are all these examples that come up in the show, and we often just find ourselves because we are four science nerds. Things will happen in the game, and we can't help ourselves. But be like, mm -hmm. ooh, that reminds me of this cool science fact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. In fact, that happens really often. And we try and keep those in as much as we can. It's And, and, and mm. I think that's part of the thing, isn't it? When you're... Like, when we actually first imagined the show, we imagined it to be mostly a vehicle for science communication. And then I think we sort of realized that actually we were a much stronger podcast as a more narrative focused podcast but where mm -hmm. we could still kind of sneak the science in and sometimes uh during the edit you do have to kind of balance like oh how much is the story important and the pacing here and how much do we have to take this opportunity to sort of get the science across and sometimes like naturally you're like oh the kind of story's reached a bit of a you know like a lull anyway we can kind of spend more time on this and other times it's like, oh no, narratively we're like rushing around. And if we dwell on this now, the narrative will suffer. So it's always an interesting, you know, sort of shuffle between the two, I think. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think then, that leads... You go. Uh, well, from a, like a, another editing point of view, it's not just science content that gets cut. Sometimes it's like D&D &D table talk stuff that yeah. gets cut yeah. because, you know, the, the narrative needs to be quick pace because we're in a fight or, or something the chase scene happening and to stop and have a quick chat about something funny that happened or this reminds you of this other thing like yeah while that works for us playing listening to it it wouldn't really make sense and it would kind of break the flow yeah. so don't worry it's like editing is not we're not just cutting science content stuff out like no. it, and we yeah uh yeah, and we I also think... don't cut much out to be honest no I think mm. I think that there's a reason that this most recent arc is going on as long as it has, uh, because we don't cut as much out as maybe we should. Uh, and uh, Ellen has also asked for the full cut of uh, Ross explaining monster battles, uh, please. Um, oh, yeah. But I think, you know, even down to when we started this podcast, I deliberately picked a PhD topic for Potentia that directly links to science. And we have done negligible connection to that as yet, um, which is totally fine and fair. Um, Ross, I don't know whether you're aware that you can see that on the stream when you do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, cool. Uh, so th 
that there's this um, this real alignment for all of us of what our characters are scientifically as academics links really clearly with what we like the goals of the podcast overall. And we've definitely explored it a lot more in Harold's case than maybe we have in Potentia's very physics-y case herself. But we there's this underlying science in everything that we do um, character-wise, be that, you know, Meredith being slightly more psychomy than the rest of us, there's certainly still this content in there that underlies and belies all of the stories we're telling. Um, and I think you're right, Ross, that we went from being like a sci-com podcast to a more academia podcast just by the nature of the kinds yeah. of stories we were telling. Yeah, I think um, we've all got experience. At, we've all got experience at university and what that kind of strange world is. Yeah. Separate, separate to everything else in, in, in the world. Academia is mm-hmm. a very strange place. Oh, and boy. we all have experience with that. And I think we can help you know especially younger people who haven't gone to university yet um mm. get a mm. glimpse into what that world is kind of like uh through a There's fantasy lens gnomes getting stuck in crabs though yeah well there are less, a number of okay fewer, switch switch fewer. gnome for engineer and switch crab for so many things yeah it's <laughs> fair or it's like- lacking some kind of crabbiness I mean, there's a little less us being in a sewer or blowing up a bridge <laughs> in real mm. real academia, but or at least yeah. intentionally accidentally blowing up a bridge, yeah. But I think it, um, is, it is an interesting glimpse into that world because science is, like, like science is obviously a process, not, you mm. know, a set of things that we know, but most science communication is just talking about the thing that we think we now know. Whereas, you know, I, I think one of the nice things about us talking about our experiences in academia is it actually gives you a, a glimpse into that process and that actually science is just done by people and like there is a lot of politics going on and there's a lot of um personal pressures and like all of like science isn't just doing experiments and writing reports there's so much more that goes into it you know the conferences that we, we you know we did an episode on like i think it's really good for people to get that kind of thing as well because you know, in the movies, it's always eureka moments, but in real life, it's not like that at all. So, mm. no, yeah. not at all. A friend of mine sent me a really interesting XKCD comic this morning that I think really clearly aligned those two things of like the movie version where it's like throw in little machine, throw in another machine, throw in mm. another machine. Oh, look, we have a very detailed answer of exactly what happened versus four panels of like it's on a centrifuge. It's been put on a slide. Well, There's we know those things are in it. this afternoon, so you can't <laughs> like, use that machine until the next yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> so <laughs> it needs maintenance. Sure. Oh yeah. Look, I mean, you and I have have spoken before about my final year project and the person who put a bubble in the line of the one machine that I needed, uh, and there was yeah. only uh, one in the southern hemisphere at the time. So uh, I couldn't actually finish time. my final year project. It was good. Um, but What a time! You know, yeah, good times. Uh, but we also run up against, I think, a lot. We can accidentally get very science accuracy in the podcast. Um, and there definitely is a line between the importance of scientific accuracy and the importance of plot 
and where those two things overlap and where the bending of the truth is allowed. Uh, and I think mm. the moon arc that we've just been going through is a really key example of that, as yeah. is when we all got shrunk down, because when you change the laws of the functional laws of physics, it it it's a time, right? Like mm-hmm. we couldn't have all the things be quite as powerful or not powerful when we were small or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the, the benefits of uh, a fantasy world is if ever anybody was to critique us and say, that wasn't scientifically accurate, I can turn around and say, it's a magic world. Magic happened. Mm. That we, exactly. we live, they, they live you in a fantasy a world where overnight all their wounds magically heal. Like, they are mm. going from zero health to maximum health overnight with a full night's rest. Yeah. I don't go from a little bit of health to a little bit more of health with a full night's rest. Yeah, Ross would be out I'm- of a job. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, true. Just take true. a sleep, yeah. you're fine, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because there, there are some stories that allow you to be a little more, um, like, bendy with the science and some that aren't. And I actually, I think... My most egregious example of a fictional show, but that was supposed to be sort of science, like science-y, was um, one of the CSIs. And a few years ago, they came out with CSI Cyber. And the problem with that show was... Yeah, and that's the thing. Most most CSI shows, they're like real crimes with exaggerated science timelines. It's like, we can get the DNA evidence. It's just going to take two weeks. We can get you that. It's just going to take a while, you know, and they kind of in CSI, they just make it seem a lot quicker than it is. But a lot of the stuff, apart from the image enhancement, I mean, you know, but a lot of shows do that. (laughs) I mean, Ellen, Ellen says in the chat, the CSI effect is painful too when people expect immediate science. And I know that Ellen works a lot in um, computers and yeah. 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 So I used to, I started out in my undergrad studying forensic science at UTS mm. because of CSI, I'm ashamed mm. to admit. Um, oh, but that's fine. Oh, Joe, whatever okay. vehicle, <laughs> hey, whatever vehicle that gets you into it, right? It's totally it's fine. True. Um, it's true. So I started studying forensic science and we did this, um, like a lot of the, I ended up switching over to analytical chemistry because I discovered that was so much more fun um, than the forensic science stuff. Um, and I enjoyed that a lot more. But because UTS has a really big forensic science school, a lot of the analytical chemistry t- subjects were taught by the forensic science crew. So mm. yeah, there was a lot of cross up, crossover. Um, and in one of my subjects, I remember it was like second or third year, we had this recurring segment where our lecturer would come in and just be like, what did CSI get horribly wrong this week? <laughs> we just like bring in like they ended up, I think, in one um, in one episode, they put DNA into a mass spectrometer, which for so many oh, reasons nice. is not possible at all. Like you don't need to know the mechanics of it. Just know the the compounds are way too big. Like it's just not going to work. You need like really special kind of time of flight stuff to be able to analyze it. And then they used that mass spectrometer, which like the very same model we had in us sitting in our lab upstairs. They used yeah. that to print out a photo of the suspect. Mm. And wow. we were just like, yeah. I guess as, as spe- NVC says, you're telling me the mass spec takes longer than 10 minutes? Yes. What? <laughs> yes. Crazy. Oh, my God. See, mass this- spec takes so long. It takes so, so long. stupidly long. But I think this is this kind of raises an interesting point. And, like, I'm sorry, I'm kind of hijacking, but I do want to know. No, do it. Like, I, I want to know what you guys think about this because in science communication, we kind of run this really, really tricky line between 
how much information and how much background do you need to know to understand this thing, mm. right? Is it mm-hmm. relevant to you to go through all of that information? Like our job is kind of to distill down information from um, the yeah. experts who spend their entire lives sorting out this stuff. Like do how much information do you need to communicate to somebody in order to tell a story, right? Like the people sitting in that lecture that I was in, we all knew that was absolutely not possible and hilarious and made yeah. up. But we, we knew that because we had, you know, two years of study behind us, right? Mm. Like how much, where do you draw that line and how much information can you go, do you need to go into to get that right? Mm. Like so where do you draw that line is? Speaking I, I as a physicist, I feel qualified <laughs> to answer this and any science question, uh, which of course is its own set of problems that physicists yeah. particularly um, get involved with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's. There are times where I have to write articles um, for topics that I know next to nothing about in my day job. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I find myself jumping online and looking up all kinds of things about parasites and microbiology and all kinds of things just to like okay mm-hmm. i need to know the the basics here to make sure that i'm i'm not using the wrong element or the wrong yeah. thing and yeah. but luckily uh i have access to the researchers who have written those things i can yes. always go back and fact check exactly um, so fact checking is very useful and scientists generally happy to like talk to you they want to tell you about this yeah. stuff mm. yeah exactly I yeah. think for me it was always really interesting because I, for a while, worked um, as like the marketing person for a maths organization. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's that thing of a lot of the time, I think it's you're right where it comes to storytelling becomes the issue there, Joe. Because, I mean, look, I find it absolutely fascinating to hear exactly how you got to your result, wonderful scientist who is standing in front of me. But that's not what the general public cares about mm-hmm. i don't mm. i don't know what to tell you but i yeah. i don't care about how you did it i care about why you did it and why it impacts me and why yes. should i care um and whilst you know yes how you did it is important did you do it properly sure but do i care that you used 25 mils of this instead of 15 mils of this Probably Am I likely not? to Do go I... and, and reproduce? I'll try and reproduce that in my home laboratory, right? Let everybody yeah. has downstairs. Exactly. And so I, I, I was going to say before, um, I am part of a team of people who do uh, another podcast uh, called the Cinema Catch Up Club, which is a podcast about films you probably should have seen by now, uh, most of which I have not seen. But, but my my friend uh, makes me do the segment "What the Science?" basically every time I come on, <laughs> which is. Here is a thing that happened where the science looked weird. Does the science make sense, Kate? And, you know, he, he, we talk, we've talked about things like Galaxy Quest or, you know, gunshots <laughs> yeah. in Full Metal Jacket and things that are absolutely yeah. outside of my understanding. But I can sit there and be like, look, some of them I'll sit there and be like, oh, God, why? Jurassic Park. Um... But there's other ones where I'm like, look, the purposes of this story, do I care that if the rocket ship had actually crashed to Earth, they all would have been splattered and killed? No, because that's not the point of the story. The point is that they crash into the convention centre and then all come out of the ship. Like, you know, it's... I mean, uh, you know, (laughs) Debbie in the chats just said, my number one movie gripe is microbiologists, etc., wearing their lab coat outside. 
Exactly. Yes. Except for the fact that, oh my gosh. Except for the fact that in America, a lot of doctors wear their white coats out of the hospital. So they've yeah. become these weird things where, mm-hmm. you know, what is actually scientifically acceptable versus mm-hmm. what is narratively more interesting. And there is a line. I don't know what the line is. I know I can yeah. feel it when I'm watching a movie and I just go, oh, no. Well, I think but is that, that line different for everybody else though, right? Like is yeah. my line a lot higher for me because I know I have that insider's knowledge? It's like, mm. so I could talk for hours on whether or not, you know, science presenters should wear lab coats or not. I am firmly mm. in the no, no. camp unless no. they're doing mm. chemistry, right? Yeah, or, or unless something they're doing something incredibly messy where you don't requires, want to get, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm firmly in the no camp. But if you're like trying to communicate a story where you have absolutely no other way of communicating that this person is a scientist except through, hey, they're wearing a lab coat, then is that, is that like, is that acceptable? I don't know. Like, yeah. where is that line? And that line is going to be different for very different people. And so, I think that's a great example because I think you have to think about like, what is the harm if we misrepresent this right? Because most mm-hmm. people watching with the microbiology example, they're not going to be thinking, well, if you were in a physical containment three facility, you would never wear that coat outside because they don't <laughs> know. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, they actually exactly. they don't know what the implication is. And so it, it's you're, you're kind of you're not accidentally setting up like the wrong picture <laughs> of an industry. Like I'm I'm much more I'm much more upset about like the lab tech in um, Outbreak who stuck his fingers in a moving centrifuge as if that's <gasps> yes. as if that's something any experienced laboratory scientist would ever do. Like, yeah. I'm, more, I'm much more upset about that because people then are like, oh, is this what it's like? You know, are people see, this careless? But see, you say that and then I think about Barry Marshall who swallowed his Barry own lab Marshall? sample. Oh, Yes. The stomach ulcer guy. Okay, you need, yeah, mm. you need to explain like, that potentially for people mm. who don't. Sorry, know. For, con- for context, Dr. Barry Marshall uh, is from Perth um, <laughs> and used to work in the lab next to mine. Um, but he uh, he was a uh, he's a microbiologist of some description. I should know more than but I do than I do. But um, you know, here we are. Uh, and he basically to prove that something to do with stomach ulcers to prove that heliobacter to pylori was not was able to be was a bacteria basically he that caused was stomach ulcers of, he chugged yeah. he chugged it he chugged them yeah. to gave himself stomach ulcers to treat himself because he yeah. couldn't do that on someone else he bet he could do it on himself yeah um, so he couldn't get the know, ethics to do it on people and he was like well people. i'm gonna just prove it on myself because strictly yeah, speaking exactly i like, mean these days you probably still would get anyway yeah. ethics stuff but like <laughs> Yeah, ethics, 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 which is incredibly important. But like, you know, mm. as um, sorry, I laughed before because Ellen has come up. Ellen in the chat has said, uh, "My favorite stock image is a dude in a lab coat in a park using a stethoscope yes. on a tree." Oh, I've never <laughs> like, seen that. That sounds amazing. I've oh, seen a whole beautiful. bunch of those memes. They're fantastic. Looking but at, it's at, true. Like, like colored that water. That is the stereotype. That is the yeah. stereotype. There are photos of me in a lab coat for some promo photos for uni mm-hmm. back when I was in undergrad. Like. But like carrying books around with a lab coat on because they wanted me to look sciencey, and I was standing there being like, "Yeah, cool." Um, but I think Debbie in the chat has asked, "How do you deal with stereotypes when trying to balance good psychom with people understanding how science works?" So that yes, I think that leads quite well from where we've just come from, conversation-wise. Um, 
that like because that I think that lab coat is really the stereotype. That's the if if you ask a small child, and I can tell you this because I've done it, get a small child to draw you a picture of a scientist, and they mm. will draw you yeah. Einstein in a white lab coat. Yeah. Usually with some brightly coloured liquid in what are not beakers, but not conical flasks, but sure. Um, and they'll, that's what they'll draw you. And it'll be a dude with glasses and crazy white hair. Mm-hmm. 99 times out of 100. And that is a stereotype that exists. Um, Joe, you and I both did the same master's program. And did you mm-hmm. do the thing when you went out to schools with where you'd ask the kids whether they thought you were no, a scientist? No, we didn't. No. So No, we didn't so do we the draw. So... You're talking about the draw a scientist test, yeah? I was talking about the draw a scientist test, except did yeah. you ever do the the thing when you were doing presentate when you were doing present? So, for context, Joe and I used to go out to schools. We were not in the same cohort, but uh, and do science shows and workshops in schools, um, basically. And whenever I was with a male co presenter, we would basically ask the kids which, like, whether they thought either of us were scientists. And we these are all people. Oh, who interesting. Are, is all like every single person who's in that pretty much has a science yeah. degree and has usually done yes, some form of research to. or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I so rarely got told I was a scientist that it was almost funny. Mm. But if I was ever with a male co-presenter, they would always get told they were a scientist. And mm-hmm. the only times I, the, the only times any of us who were women got told we would look like scientists as if we were wearing glasses. Mm. Maybe this is why I didn't notice it. I don't did you, know. Well, the question is, anyway. did you ever ask the question? Like, if you if you never asked the question Not of giant really, no. children, you probably wouldn't have noticed it. But it's an no, interesting one where we, that is the did. stereotype. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When, I mean, the nice thing is, is that that is starting slowly to not be as much the case which is nice like the um i think joe you were alluding to the drawer scientist test and Mm. now i mean luckily you know we are making steady progress on women featuring you know a lot more um Mm -hmm. in that test where obviously previously almost universally people would draw as kate said the you know the einstein type dude or whatever yeah the numbers are definitely shifting another in you know towards a nicer ratio. Yeah. I would like to see it more, please. That yeah. would be nice. Um, mm. But yeah, that's a, a slow progress kind of road. Yeah. Um, but this kind of, I don't know, the stereotypes are, are really entrenched, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know, like, do we, there's a certain kind of, there's a very big part of me, right, that wants to go, no, we need to, to work really hard at, at ditching these stereotypes because mm. they're not helpful and they're not. Um, and there's a reason why I'm really against like wearing lab coats to be a scientist, right? Because most scientists don't wear lab coats. Yeah. Right? Like most scientists don't. Um, only in very specific circumstances. And yeah, and as Debbie very rightly pointed out, you're not really supposed to wear them outside of your lab. Don't nope. do that. Um, <laughs> no. Hmm, not a good plan. Um, but I guess is there any kind of circumstance where you can use those stereotypes to your advantage in storytelling? I think so. Uh, and I think so because I, so as I said, one of the things I am qualified to do now is be in schools and teach tiny people. And it is amazing how much, so I have a book, it is actually just out of reach or I would grab it 
to show you, but it is a it's a book all about women in science. Actually, hang on. Rage, rage yeah, for it's it. Out of reach. Sorry, ah, it is. No, it's, on the, it's it's must be in my bag actually. Um, that's got a whole bunch of women scientists in it, and what it really helps with is because it's got a lot of these pictures of them in lab coats or whatever. It's to debunk one stereotype. It's using mm-hmm. the other one to help mm. to take those baby steps. Or yes. when there's books for little kids where they've got a scientist in them, they'll often have them in a lab coat to start with. Like, this is Bob. Bob is a scientist. And then you might meet Bob later on, but Bob doesn't have a lab coat on mm-hmm. anymore. But it's mm-hmm. to sort of cement the role first rather than necessarily to make that a, a singular factor about somebody. Yeah. I mean, you might do a similar thing with other professions as well, where if you were using, say, film or television and you want to introduce somebody as a doctor, yeah, you might, like, the very first time you see them, they might be at a clinic where, like, or they've just come off a shift and they're still wearing their scrubs or whatever they might be. Mm. Yeah. Like, and then... They don't need to wear those for the rest of the, the the movie because they're like they've established in shorthand this person is a blank, this person is a firefighter, this person is a work, whatever it might be. Yeah. Because you saw them once, and that's all you yes. need to like ingrain it into your mind. So for shorthand, it can be useful. Yeah, and, as like, long as you don't make that like the core of their their personality as a. Yeah, you don't need Professor yeah. Labcoat running around. Um, <laughs> Professor Labgoat von Mad scientist. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because actually one of the problems, not with necessarily science communication, but stereotyping of science is there's ironically two completely opposite stereotypes. And it's that the scientist is super competent and always has the answers to everything. And then there's the completely opposite one where it's like the scientist who just couldn't let their curiosity, you know, um, hold them back, make some horrendous thing, and then the world's in danger... Like, they're two completely opposite stereotypes, but they're both Mm. very common. And I think actually that hurts science a lot because, you know, if you think about the latest coronavirus um, uh, stuff, like recently it was very conclusively proved that the virus did not come from uh, a lab. But anyone, anyone who works in infectious disease could tell you how ridiculously unlikely that ever was in the first place. Mm -hmm. But to the normal person, they see all of these movies where scientists are sort of like working away in some dark lab somewhere on their own kind of thing. Um, And that's just obviously not how it is. You know, science is very collaborative. And so there are so many checkpoints where people would have a chance to go, hey, what are you doing? That's not, you know. And also, you know, the the motivation. maybe don't make that giant monster that's going to overtake the rest of the world. Right, exactly. Maybe don't. Maybe don't. You know, like people like, um, you know, Mr. Freeze, right? Mr. Freeze from Batman, uh, you know, his motivation. Dr. Freeze. He Dr. earned Freeze. that doctorate. Yeah, that's he, true. Did, he earned I that. Did. How dare you take his title yeah. away from him, Ross? Well, um, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger probably. Uh, yeah. It was just the that. worst casting for that. But, um, you know, like people like Dr. Freeze, like, it's like, while I can understand his motivations, uh, mm. you know, scientists are just normal people with like normal consciences, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, but then there's the opposite where I think people put too much stock in scientists and where, you know, the scientists apparently in some ways are just this magical device for, like, correctitude. And 
that's obviously not the case as well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, is it Linus Linus Pauling uh, really got onto this like idea that um, vitamin C could cure cancer? And he's a physicist; he doesn't know anything about medicine. But a lot of people still, well, he's got a Nobel Prize. He's a scientist. He must be right. Well, no, like scientists get stuff wrong all the time and i think that's one Mm -hmm. of the hardest things to communicate is that like science is a process that gives us the best approximation of the truth today but Mm -hmm. not necessarily tomorrow yeah exactly um and how do you communicate to people that that's still incredibly valuable whilst also saying you need to be a little cautious that things might change it's hard Yeah, because like here's the thing right like if if you got something wrong in any other job right like you're building a bridge you get the calculations wrong and you're like well this is the best explanation for today right um yes it collapsed and thousands of people died right however we'll learn from this and we'll make everything better tomorrow right like in any other situation it wouldn't like it just doesn't sound good but that's literally how science works right like we're we're exploring every day we're building on other people's research so you can totally understand why people kind of listen to it and go, what are you talking about? I mean, probably very early on, engineers building bridges and towers were like, okay, we're going to build up this many floors. And it fell over. That's too many oh, floors. Yeah. That's a bad idea. That's too many floors for this design. But I mean, you know, to, to quote Einstein, if we knew what we were doing, it would not be called research, would it? Like, you know, it's we're just giving it a crack and hoping. Exactly. Um, but I think that, you know, someone in the chat, uh, before, I think it might've been Ham. I don't remember. Uh, I'd have to scroll back. Um, asked a question, uh, how do we feel and or cope with all the current issues with all, with misinformation out there and what feels like a push towards quote unquote anti-science? Does it impact Mm. on how we approach what we do or even in our current jobs? Hmm. I think so. I think, I mean... Yeah. I think it's added a lot of caveats that maybe, you know, like I, 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 I started Scientism in 2012 and back then we very rarely qualified anything. You know, we, mm. we basically were saying, yeah, these researchers did this. This is the kind of evidence they have. This looks pretty cool. It would be interesting to see if this develops. Whereas now I do often find myself having to... Uh, when you explain science to people, I mean, I've literally had this. I was li- I was just at the train station uh, and the guy who runs the train station just happened. I don't even remember why we got talking, but I happened to mention that I was a microbiologist and he was talking to me about coronavirus stuff. And I had to put in all these caveats about how, oh yeah, you know, they, they kind of do this, but at the moment, you know, that could change. Like, I think we're really having to do a lot more legwork to sort of justify why why the picture evolves in a way that I don't think we had to 10 years ago. I think people accepted a little more that science did change. And I think it's because we've almost entered an era where we don't have these groundbreaking discoveries very often anymore because they were the lower hanging fruit. And now we keep sort of incrementing our knowledge instead of, you know, instead of like, you know, just think about the last massive thing we discovered was probably in the 90s, right? With the, with the fact that the universe is expanding, you know, space itself that is expanding. That was what I immediately thought of, hey. I can't think of anything since then that's been 
super I mean, gravitation waves, yeah. but like that gravitation uh, waves isn't enough that the average person can really just grasp and understand. I guess yeah, it depends without. on what yeah. you mean. Like the James Webb Telescope is probably the most recent thing, but even that's like taking pictures of black things. Crispers, yeah, as, that we already kind of knew were the there. Oh yeah, yeah CRISPR is yeah. pretty good, but it's it still doesn't have that big like like imagine in 1915 when they looked at pictures of galaxies and went holy moly like there's more than one like there are multiple <laughs> galaxies like yeah. we've kind of and, and even like germ theory you know like imagine like how germ theory and epidemiology you know that the cholera outbreak in london like those things absolutely changed the world and now mm-hmm. we've kind of run out of earth-shattering things and i think in a way because we keep making these little incremental discoveries that actually can often be reversed once oh we've actually got a newer machine now and it just does the job a lot yeah. better i, I think mm-hmm. it's harder now because a lot of things are getting walked back that previously it was hard to do because it was such a monumental discovery that it's like there's no way this isn't true because we just get all this evidence and it's mm. it's like mm. i think that's what's making it harder as well is that we're just we're making smaller and smaller discoveries that are a lot easier to be false yeah, I think for me, the, the that idea of anti-science, I think Ham's just made a joke in the chat about, hey, Bob said COVID came from cheese, don't eat the cheese. Well, like, <laughs> yeah, people are just saying stuff and it, especially with, and I am not one, I'm on every social media platform. So don't, don't think this is me anti-social media-ing, but mm. social media makes it that much harder because people just say things and then they sound okay, but so people don't check mm-hmm. and then it becomes yep. this mm. big wave and at no point, and, you know, because these things are a small echo chamber, because if you don't know any scientists, you don't have someone who can be like, um, no, that's not how that works, or no, what about this? You do, really do have this problem of mis, uh, misinformation, mm. disinformation even, that mm. is, it, it means that a lot of science communicators and a lot of educators and a lot of scientists are sitting there being like we've explained all of this and it's not getting Mm -hmm. to the right people or all it is is one voice yelling into a vacuum of space that's been where the air's essentially been sucked out by Mm. misinformation it's not actually that we're wrong it's just that people think that google is going to give them an answer when it's not yeah. necessarily if you don't know how to critically look at what the answers are or who's giving them to you mm. or yes. what it's backed on. The, the critical thinking lack, I think, is a bigger issue. It's not I don't just... know that it's just a lack of critical thinking either. Like it's There's this really... Um, I've seen a couple of, of um, really, really good pieces about how... Um, and it's a really a kind of underlying theory in science communication as well. Facts don't work. No, I would highly recommend model. going and and looking up um uh, someone who you did your circus with um Lee Constable. She's a really really good science communicating communication communicator mm. <laughs> on Twitter. She's she's, she's, she's a very a good of... psychom communicator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, but she talks a lot about um yeah the challenges of science communication basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. but she talks a lot about how um how this kind of you know facts just don't work right and if you think about it i'm going to use i don't really want to bring it up because i think it it can be unhelpful and it can lead us down a whole you know different road but like if you Mm. think about yeah i'm just using this as an example like mm, um 
the anti-vax debate, right? Like mm. you can kind of understand, if you listen to, to people who are involved in that, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. Because a lot of the time mm-hmm. they're parents who are really genuinely concerned about their children. Yeah. Right? And they're being told by other mums and other dads who they trust, um, often people in their family who they trust, um, about how they might need to look into this because they've heard other people that they trust say that this stuff is dangerous. And you look at this tiny child that you genuinely would dive in front of a bus for and you're like, maybe I should look into this. You can totally see how it happens, right? And so it's it's a big challenge for science communicators, I think, to <clears throat> to figure out ways to communicate this on a relational way. And that is, I mm. think, where things like stories come into play because yeah. you can mm. tell stories to people. You can put them in that context. You can talk about um, about these sorts of things in a different context rather than just being like, "Hey, yeah. you're wrong. Here are oh, all of absolutely. the facts." I mean, like yeah, that's it's really like tricky. straight into the persuasive techniques, like the the three, yes. the pyramid, the ethos, pathos, and logos. Mm-hmm. Um, ethos, like ethically, the the right and wrong. Pathos is appeal to emotion, and logos is the appeal to logic. Mm-hmm. Um, like ethos is, you know, like, I am respectable. You can believe me. Yes. Um, pathos, you know, you can appeal to their emotion, and mm-hmm. like the emotional response we've proven is so much stronger than the logical response. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's a reason why people are persuaded by emotional arguments so much more than than a logical argument. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that's and, where we're st- yeah. this kind of stuff, you know, um, sci-fi and mm. um, and comic books and fantasy stories and just stories about like people in science history, you know, like you know, yeah. Um, yeah, really come into play. And I think that's where we're going to engage with people and that's where we're going to, you know, start changing people's way of thinking. Yeah. Who I mean, might it's, not it's, necessarily have that background. It's a lot more powerful to just to say, well, I got, I got vaccinated mm. than it is to sort of, you know, try and almost shame people into changing their mind. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the second you bring shame into it, people dig their heels in. Rightly so. Yep. We should not be shaming people. Like, that's and, you know, just going, not a good human thing to do. No. And the I problem think is perhaps going, maybe we've, we've strayed a little bit from our, our yeah, topic Yeah, we have of, a little bit. I'm trying to bring well, it back. I was, was going yeah. no, no, to say, to, 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 to bring it back, I was actually going to say, it, I think it is a really, it's really clear that when you start looking at, um, the, the chat was just talking about the fact that there's a lot of very good TikTok scientists who mm. who are yes. bringing science into basically bringing science to where the people are because that is the best way to debunk these kinds of things and to um is to bring them and link them to things that people already understand it's hey i totally understand why you're really concerned about this let me quickly explain to you how this actually works but let me talk to you about it with Lego as an example, yeah. or yeah. it's something it's, it is an imperfect comparison. And I think that's, you know, people go, how specific do you need to be? Well, you don't, you can use something that meets people where they are. Exactly. And you can use stories to help them understand how something works functionally um, mm-hmm. in, instead. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's much change- easier to wear a shirt with an Adam like symbol on it than a cloud of possibility of where, <laughs> yeah where the electron may exist. It's so much easier just to have the the swirly electron, like the planetary model of the atom. But I think the thing is as well is that, you know, 
Using stories to communicate is really important, but also it's who's telling those stories as well. Yes. And and it's it's so important that there are a diverse set of faces because it's much more easy for you to trust someone who is like you. And for a long time, you know, Dr. Scientist is some white dude just beyond middle-aged. And that's that was the face of science for centuries. You know, you, mm, you look back is, to the... Still um, a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, look, I mean, look at us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like, it's... Yep. I, I think it's... And I, I think it's important, and, and I think this is where I want to bring the storytelling back in, is that if you are telling a story, you need to actually make an effort to make that story, like, not just be the white dude. You know, your, your scientist protagonists, they need to be diverse because people see themselves in those characters... And then they're more likely to either trust those characters or want to be those characters, which I think is important too, um, you know, to make people think that they are worthy of being part of that story. Mm. Yeah, I think, and I mean, I almost kind of want to take that and go back to what we've done with the podcast, because I think we have hit the right balance when it comes to that in d and Doctorates. And there is a, we're not the only podcast out there that are doing TTRPGs meet science um, I don't There's know if any of the cool others ones, are in yeah. the chat, but there certainly are um, a whole lot of them. And, you know, Nature nature Quest, Nature something like that. I can see their logo in my head, but I can't remember what they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, very much focus on nature and the environment and that kind of thing. There's other people who focus much more on your chemistry, and, and that's kind of the point is that we're all able to tell stories that are very different stories and they're very different styles because we know the kinds of stories that we want to tell and we know the kinds of information that we want to be disseminating. And I think for us, you know, it's things like if you were to hold your breath when you shrunk, do you explode? Um, that, that kind of stuff becomes more fun and jovial and jokey for us to tell where, you know, if you wanted to do an entire TTRPG about conservation maybe you do humblewood or something to do mm. a whole big mm-hmm. thing using storytelling mm. and i think what's great about the ttrpg space in particular is that there are such a diverse set of established worlds already that you don't have to yeah. do a lot of the legwork yourself if you don't want to humblewood's a great example you know yeah like you can you can take this setting about small cute like animals and talk about well how is like for instance how is climate change affecting our world and from the point of view of like the the things that it's affecting you know like you can role play that or you know you can have a more sciencey one where you talk about physics a lot more or um you know some kind of cyberpunk thing and you're talking about sort of the, the sort of like a near future thing with like the cybernetics and sort of body stuff like there are such there's such a range of stories available for you to tell and mm-hmm. because you get to sort of make the rules a little you can almost shoehorn in the stuff that you want like one of the great things about magic is we get to set up these scenarios that would not really be possible conventionally but we get to sort of say well you got there by magic now what and then we get yeah. to sort of bring in the science Exhibit. and that's we're on the moon <laughs> like yeah, you know exactly <laughs> Now let's talk about how do spells work on the moon. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Debbie has asked in the chat a little while ago what our favourite science moments over the campaign have been. Um, 
I will give everyone a moment and I will just fill for time to let you have some thinking space because uh, just for those who are just joining us, we are an hour in. Uh, I think most of you have been here for a while, but hello. Just a reminder, we are the team behind Dungeons and Doctorates. This is Discussions and Dragons, our chat about all things TTRPG and science meets uh, entertainment and popular culture. Uh, we are keeping an eye on the chat for questions and comments and things. Please jump in there because people are having a good old time, it seems. Um, I see many a pun coming through. Thank you, <laughs> Ellen and NBC. I'm enjoying yes. it. I'm trying not to cringe in chat. Uh, but oh, it is, I'm going to have to go it, back and yeah. watch for those. That's amazing. This will be on VOD as well, so if anyone does have to duck off, don't worry. We will have this available to you. Uh, if you follow us on Twitter, we'll tell you when it goes up. Has anyone thought of their favourite science moment so that I can stop talking and can think about my own? Yes, I've got mine. <laughs> Thanks, I'm not actually sure if this ended up in the um, in the the final edit because I think we had mm. a big discussion about it. But there was a moment where we were were we throwing acid onto the golem? Ah, uh, there was a the somebody. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The... And um. Initially, the golem was made out of something, one type of metal, and then we threw acid onto it and it started to fizz and boil. And it was one of those moments where I was just like, oh my goodness, my chemistry degree is coming in handy. Yeah. That is not mm. what would happen. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And we had this big old um, discussion and yeah. it ended up getting changed to a different I don't type of metal, think but that like, made it into the edit, actually. Edit. No. <laughs> because it was like, oh no, Ben messed up his chemistry. <laughs> it, was, it was fun for me. Yeah, we ended up having to sort of, um, yeah, kind of like change a couple of things. But that, um, but that's the thing, you know. I'm that, sorry, Ben, but like that's that was such a, a very easy thing. Someone to, in the chat said, "Wasn't it zinc?" Mess up, and as well. I feel like so maybe it did get in yes. there, and then we edited it. It was zinc. It. No, no, no. So we had no, to no. change it to zinc. It, we we changed it to, to zinc. zinc. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we had to change it to ben, something else. Ben it was zinc. Metal. Okay, it was zinc. I'm like, okay, okay. And I was like, um, actually, yeah. But that's a great example where it didn't really <laughs> it didn't really affect the narrative for us to make no, sure the all. metal was correct. Um, yeah, precisely. Like if we hadn't changed that, nothing would have changed in the story, right? Like it was such a, a moment where I was in my head, kind of having this whole like imposter syndrome thing. Like, do I say something? Does this matter? And then I was like, nah, you know, yeah. stuff it. I'm going to say something. Um, but and I'm glad I did. But like, this is exactly what we were talking about, right? Like. Apart from, you know, your oh, Neil deGrasse and Tyson types sitting and mm. tweeting in the movie theatre in grump, grumpiness, like, yeah. who else is going to notice, right? Yeah. Probably me, but mm. that's that's because I think I think you and I were both <laughs> sitting there being like, what? Wait. <laughs> Degree. Yeah. This is, this is not right. Um, but, like, it's such a small detail, so, like, would it yeah. have mattered if we changed it or not? Mm. Discuss. Mm. I mean... I think it wouldn't wouldn't we have mattered if right. we had not been a podcast full of science communicators who <laughs> are the kinds of people who make it who, a point to be yeah, but but also who are who promote this to people who are also science communicators <laughs> who hundred percent would yeah. have been mm. like it's it's the, hey the details I think that we bother with you know yeah, yeah. but actually I I can't go into details because this would be spoilers but the. The change from the metal I had previously chosen, which was the wrong kind of metal, to zinc. I did research on zinc, which like developed a whole other plot 
plot point, oh, no. which will come into it at some point in the future. Yes. <laughs> because I'm like, how could somebody get so much zinc? What are they doing? And I researched, right. and yeah. Uh, oh, so, that's so cool! Like, I'll, I'll hide D20 they... in the chat. The golem was saved by science. The party was reduced to base components smeared over the floor. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, what about you, Ross? Did you have a favourite science moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I'm obviously a little biased, but I, I, I did like the discovery of the planets because I think what was nice about it is that, obviously, it wasn't necessarily, like, the most clever science thing we've done but it it, it mirrors the, our own science history and that's what I yeah. liked about it we got to sort yeah. of you know like the start of this current arc we had the conference where people were sort of questioning the science and that really mirrors what happens when these big discoveries are made you know a lot of a lot of scientists don't want to let the current dogma go they've spent their careers working on some other theory um, mm. mm-hmm. and uh, I probably inserted a little more doubt into things than maybe historically scientists would might might have had for my own character, just because I think you know in the past a lot of scientists were sort of they they had these like patrons and they were pretty confident about what they were doing I think whereas I I kind of made Harold's character a little more like hmm maybe we should get more evidence and you know, line this up. Whereas, you know, it, it used to be that you'd make this kind of discovery and you'd just straight off to the academy and like, you know, present all the stuff. I mean, except for Darwin, who just literally pontificated for decades before writing his book. Um, but yeah, I, I liked that because obviously it, it, it's a nice way to sort of tell a bit of science history. And I kind of wish we had more of that. I feel like we don't have enough science history because it's it, it's littered with super interesting characters, you know. Like, mm. I'd love to, I'd love to meet a Tycho Brahe-like character in our world because that would be amazing, you know. Brass these, nose guy. Yeah, exactly. Like, Lost his nose in a duel. I mean, he died because he didn't want to get up from the dinner table because it was too yep. rude and let his bladder burst. Like, there are all of these colourful characters, and I, I think what I enjoy the most about science communication, actually. Is talking about the people in it because they're almost the most interesting. I remember when I did um, Sciencism, the very first time I rang up a scientist and did an interview, um, it was about the probe that had been sent to Pluto. And for whatever reason, this dude was a fan of the Hoodoo Gurus, this like obscure Australian band. Like, that's amazing. Like, that's the kind yeah. of detail that's so... It's almost more interesting than the science, but I, I I think that it's just, I really love when you can show that, oh, you know, scientists are just people that like music and art and have favorite movies. Like, I, I think that's way more interesting to tell the story of people making discoveries instead of just talking mm-hmm. about discoveries, you know, like um, Hidden Figures. Amazing. Like, what a film. Like, mm. that's the kind of stuff that really, to me, it's like, look how hard people worked. Look what they had to go through to get this information um you know i think it's important to show that it's hard work um Mm -hmm. there's a really really good example of this that i actually use whenever i'm talking to academics in my job um and kind of giving them advice on how to how to psych on um yeah it's pretty fun there's a a really great um video abstract by a group out of anu um Mm. a couple years ago they discovered that the palm cockatoos in northern queensland Mm. drum and there's this fantastic video 
um, video abstract that they filmed at ANU about the discovery. And I use it because, and like not every discovery is going to have this kind of tidbit, but they basically just include this like one sentence. It's a throwaway line where they talk about how they had to stalk the palm cockatoo throughout the, the rainforest in northern Queensland. And just the sheer amount of hours that they had to spend in the rainforest filming these cockatoos to get such a small amount of, you know, like it's such a, a tiny chance to get to film this event. Mm. And then they had to do, get like hundreds of these videos to get a data set, right? And then you can kind of like, whenever I show it to, to um, conferences or, or workshops and stuff, you can see them calculating in their head and they're just like, that's a lot of hours. <laughs> like, yeah. But even that, just like one sentence, it's just literally one part of the the whole presentation. But it just adds so much to your engagement with it and your um, the way that you see the scientists. Like you suddenly see them as human because they're telling a story, right? Like they're tell- talking about how they did it. They're not talking about their you know, their methods and statistical analyses. They're talking about like stalking palm cockatoos with a telephoto lens. Like that's interesting. That's, that's information that is, that's fascinating. I love it. Yeah. Mm. What about you, Kate? Do you have a favorite science moment? Um, I think a lot of mine get cut because they're the moments when my brain goes, oh, actually that wouldn't work. Crap. Um, because I'm trying to do something and then the environment doesn't work or whatever. So, you know, um, when lightning and sound and things are or aren't going to work because magic is cool. Um, yeah, I, I think the conversations we had around how to work out how many hit points things had when we were tiny was interesting to me just because scientifically that idea of an ant now is a threat because you are tiny mm-hmm. um because it's a way of looking at the world that is different to the way that we classically look at the world um mm. same with the conversations that we had when we got onto the moon and we were like oh hang on how does how does science now because <laughs> how how do moon crabs um but and you know the conversations we had around you know being able to step in and out or not because of how hot or cold it was going to be and the sort of the environmental science I think is the thing that I find the most interesting rather than necessarily an event or a, a particular description of something um, mm. because I mean that links straight back to the kind of science that my character is doing it's that idea of it's really environmental based it's really um, how and why do the thing does the thing work? So that's just usually the thing that I like. There's some serious uh, bird talk happening in the chat. If anyone uh, <laughs> of our no, it's panel so wants good. to have a look at it, um, you can blame D20 for starting. Nope, you can blame <laughs> NVC for starting it. You can blame NVC for starting it. Um, what about I'm you, sorry, Ben? Not sorry. It's your it's your happy place. What's uh, what about you? Thought I snuck around it by asking you. Um, no, sir. <laughs> so I am. I am moderating this. this is, you're not getting away. It's uh, that it's, it's, all of the tr- scientific it's moments. Tricky. It's great. It's yeah. really tricky for me to pick a favorite science moment. Like, I I loved describing uh, Harold's shag carpet 
from mm. the perspective of an ant where you know you're talking next to big strange trees and just shifting your entire perspective that was so um, cool i love the deep dive I, I had to do into like okay how cold is it on the moon what would that be in in dungeons and dragons damage like what or how hot would it be on the moon what does that mean mm-hmm. How do I do radiation and all those kinds of things? That was really interesting. But I think what it comes down to is actually all of the random science characters I've come up with. Mm. Because uh, a lot of them are based on real people. Uh, Elements of people. Who's Lanwin based on? Um, Okay, he's a character that I don't think is based on anybody. Okay, good. Uh, a sports science sports scientist, Gore the Barbarian. Yeah. Yes. Looking at whether a barbarian lifestyle and training regime will help uh, athletes train and and you know improve their bodies. And so good. Like he's such a great character, and the fact that he's doing you know experiments and doing all these things has basically not played into him at all in the story. No, half of that's true. Like when we, when, like I was a scientist who sat on student union and was most commonly known for being in theater shows and stuff at uni. Like that is not, your degree is not your entire life or well, unless you're potential, um, your degree is not your entire life. So why should we depict it as such? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so just, like, there are some... Um, okay, here here is a peek behind the curtain. Every single person in Potentia's office is based on a real person. Take that, people who know Ben. <laughs> You're all my, <laughs> my, my office mates. You're welcome. Yeah, they're all it, based... Suck it, at, at least, at, least <laughs> at the start. At least at the start, they're all based on, they're all based on real people. And they've, yeah, they've they changed yeah. over a little bit Suck, over time. Sucks to be whoever Haldora was, my God. You were not nice about her description in the beginning. They're all people. They are people. <laughs> but they're all, doing, they're all doing science and they're all doing interesting things. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and I, the fact that sometimes I throw in characters from history a little bit uh, and I tweak their names. Shout out to the chemist Paracelsus. Mm. Um, which, just a great name for an elven like character in a world so who is also a, a very famous chemist. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, the, sorry, the, the, the name Paracelsus major... von Hohenheim? Yeah. What a name for a person. Uh, there is some Little major love in the chat for Haldora, by the way. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Um, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. That's the end for part one. I hope you join us again next week. <laughs>